Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for Cold Star Technologies. I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its Board of Advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out what we can achieve together with your Lean Six Sigma or Operational Excellence programs. And check out opexsociety.org to learn more. Well, this one's like talking to one of your childhood heroes. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Alphen is somebody I came across in uh, ooh, seven, eight years ago, maybe, on YouTube. Uh, I found his Weapons of West Point videos that he made for West Point uh, in, in the middle of the 80s. And they're very relevant today. They're about the history and components of firepower and uh, a great baseline for anybody wanting to learn the history and uh, the trade-offs that go into manufacturing firearms. So, Colonel started out at West Point in 1966. He was obviously not a Colonel <laughs> at that time, but uh, got into armor. Uh, he was selected for early attendance at the Command and General Staff College in uh, Fort Leavenworth and graduated in 1981 on the Dean's List. He taught military history through the early 80s and was asked to take a sabbatical year and create this course that you can find on YouTube. Just Google Weapons of West Point and you'll find most of it there uh, in 1985. He's a pistol shooting expert. And in 1979, he formed the A-Square Company for marketing his firearm designs and ended up employing 27 people. Uh, became a, a really good standard for trophy hunting as far as uh, rifles and ammunition went. In, uh, starting in 1982, he began to be a, uh, an expert called in to court cases and has done that. There was a um, period in the middle where he was taking care of his wife but pretty much continuously since then. And <laughs> I'll tell you, it's, there have been cases where the other side heard that he was uh, going to be on the defense team and that was the end of that. They settled. So now old Jason here had to get the guts up to call Arthur. <laughs> thinking about, hey, maybe I can have him on the show. That'd be kind of fun. Uh, last year, and uh, due to court cases and move and that kind of thing, uh, we finally got around to doing it, and I really appreciate uh, Arthur being able to join us today. Colonel, welcome. So, Colonel, let's see. You, you started out in uh, in training and instruction of shooting and that. How did you get to that point? You got to, to West Point. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that and how you were focusing on weapons and firearms. I was trained in shooting by my uncle, who had been a infantryman in the trenches in World War I. Mm. And I started training under him when I was 10 years old. That got me into exterior ballistics and marksmanship and all kinds of other things. Then I became a cadet at West Point. And I don't exactly remember how I met him, but I remember being in the museum and I met a guy named Gerald Stowe, who was the curator of the museum at West Point. And at the time, West Point Museum had the largest working collection of firearms in the free world. And he allowed me to come over once a week, sign out a machine gun, take it back to my room, and he'd provide me with the engineering drawings and maybe a bio of the inventor or whatever. And so I disassembled machine guns and studied the design and the common threads of design amongst the various guns. 
like the German Fallschirm Jaeger 42 was basically a copy of the Lewis gun, and the M60 machine gun is a copy of the Fallschirm Jaeger. So I got into all of those things in design. I was also lucky enough to validate many of the basic engineering courses, and that allowed me to load up on electives given by the Department of Ordnance Engineering. Hmm. So I took every elective offered by the Department of Ordnance Engineering, and that got me graduated from West Point with a BS in Weapons Systems Engineering. Very good. Very good. And uh, the Fallschirmjäger, those are the German paratroopers, right? Uh, right. Fallschirmjäger is a German paratrooper, and they had a different gun, not the MG-42. They okay. had a different lightweight magazine-fed automatic rifle. Hmm. Okay. So you graduate from West Point. You've got this degree. How do you put it to use? Uh, you you uh, started working with larger guns <laughs> and then, uh, than the machine gun. Let's talk about that yes. for a minute. I became a tanker. I was commissioned in armor um, over in Germany. And we had a massive amount of problem with the M85 machine gun, which is the 50 caliber machine gun mounted in the cupola where the tank commander sits. Mm -hmm. And there was a pin there that we nicknamed the Jesus pin, because if that pin breaks by Jesus, this thing won't work. And that pin is what put the locking lugs out prior to firing and then brought the locking lugs in when the weapon cycled. And they were constantly breaking. So here I am, a second lieutenant buried in second platoon, C Company, first of the 35th Armor. And I got some of the drawings for the pin and put a suggestion in so that went through my company commander, the battalion commander, the brigade commander, the division commander up the United States Army Europe over to America. And about four months later, they had adopted my idea of fabricating the pin from S7 tool steel. And the first sample of pins came in. Mm. And we installed those in our M85 machine guns. Problem solved. Nice. Very good. Yeah, because uh, the mounting for a machine gun is very important. <laughs> but Absolutely. You, you can't just put one on your pickup truck and uh, hope that it'll stay there. <laughs> it'll probably rip things out. There's a little vibration that goes on. Yes. So I, I first encountered you, Art. Uh, you created what we call the, the West Point Weapons Tape. Uh, they're on YouTube. You can find them uh, also on your website at ArthurAlfin.com. I'll link to that as well. Uh, and these, I just love them. <laughs> I've watched them so many times and shared them with people. Uh, you're the first person I learned about terminal effect from, for example, such simple concepts, right? Uh, but for civilians, you know, we just don't know about this kind of thing. So I got a great education of the history of uh, small arms technology all the way up to Napoleonic cannons from you. Uh, you know, how did that come about? How did you even get that job? Well, I got my master's degree at Rice University in Houston, Texas, then went to command and general staff mm -hmm. school, college, and then got a slot teaching at West Point in the history department. So for two years, I taught the military history course 
Then the dean of the academic board came to me and he asked me to create a course combining weapon systems engineering and technology with tactics and history. The ordnance department, ordnance engineering department had been disbanded in 1972. So I was kind of a last stretch for the dean to bring that back. So I created that course and it was the most popular elective available at West Point at the time. And then the soup asked me to stay for a fourth sabbatical year and using the video capability at West Point to create a series of weapons tapes that would institutionalize what I taught in my special course. So the tapes came about. Right. And many they, they the are. Weapons, Go ahead, Art. Many of the weapons there are my weapons. Hmm. And I had a lathe set up in my garage and I was making parts and making ammunition so we could get the tapes done. Okay. Uh, they are a lot of fun, folks. Uh, they were made in the 80s. And so we've got basically VHS and, and uh, cameras and it's. Uh, all the way up to the M16 and the AK47, 74. It, it, the, the breadth of things, though, that you go through is uh, very, very enjoyable. The, the firing of the weapons I particularly enjoy, right? You go out and you field test them and show, for example, how long it takes for a bolt-action rifle to uh, be reloaded and fire and reacquire your sight picture and all that compared to uh, a magazine-loaded rifle. And, uh, you know, seeing is believing, right? It's, it's the there fastest it way to learn it. And you ham it up a little bit. I also enjoyed your delivery. The Frito Bandito line will uh, remain in my memory for a very long time. <laughs> they festooned with bandoliers and that kind of thing. So are, are the tapes still valid today? I know the answer to this one. Oh, yes. The tapes are still in use in the Army for both West Point and for ROTC. They're actually in use at the Air Force Academy. Hmm. and yeah they are still valid today and still in use today right yeah the the uh fundamentals of firepower the components of firepower video one <laughs> they don't change right we're still yes. interested in these trade-offs between uh different elements of firepower and uh everybody can learn from that i, I have shared these with some folks who realized that they didn't want to learn that much about firepower once they started getting into it, uh, which is too bad for them because I didn't consider them extremely complex or anything like that. I, I thought they were a great foundation and uh, I recommend anybody who wants to learn about this topic, uh, go check them out. So I guess briefly, Art, tell us about your career after creating these tapes and, and your work following retirement from the Army. After West Point, I became the director for materials test at Jefferson Proving Ground in Indiana. Had about 400 people working for me and we were responsible for a lot of proof acceptance testing. We were responsible for surveillance testing of ammo that had been in storage. And we were also responsible for the reference ammunition program for the free world. So we had some interesting things to do there. Mm. Then I went to Fort Knox and I became director of the Advanced Technology Research Directorate in the Armor Engineer Board. And then I was promoted to the 
armor test director of the armor engineer board and we tested and approved many of the components that became a part of the abrams tank mm. okay <laughs> so, very and, interesting i'd love to talk to you about that on another occasion that would be fun yep then i retired from the army and started the a square company mm -hmm. the a square company was a manufacturer of large bore bolt action sporting rifles cartridge cases bullets and assembled ammunition and i started the a square company within 16 months of starting it i had built it up brought people on board trained them designed some of the machinery designed all of the fixtures cutting tools and so forth and i applied for membership in sporting arms and ammunition manufacturers institute they sent a team down, they vetted me, and A-Square was accepted as a full-time SAMI member company. Mm -hmm. Very good. So how, how big did the company become? At our height, I had about 22,000 square feet on six-inch slab under roof, 27 people working for me. I had two ballistics test ranges, hmm. a quality control laboratory, a metallurgical laboratory. I mean, we were a going concern. Yeah. Well, what do you think was the biggest takeaway or biggest thing you learned from running that company? How difficult it is to actually run a manufacturing <laughs> company. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. My beloved and I used to joke that I had a nine to five job. I'd get home after nine o'clock at night and leave home before five in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a huge time and energy commitment. That's for sure. So you work now as a technical consultant uh, to attorneys uh, concerning weapon systems. How did that come about? I think it's a natural, but uh, how did the attorneys find out you exist? Largely by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, I started when I was at Rice working on my master's degree and there was a, an area of gaze called Montrose, just a housing area outside the hedges of Rice that just happened to have a lot of gay folks. At the time being gay was a class three misdemeanor in Houston. And a guy by the name of Fred Pays died, the bullet entered the left posterior, exited above the left eyebrow, obviously killing him instantly. And the Montrose Patrol, a self-policing group of both gays and straight in the Montrose area came to me and asked me to help them solve the problem and maybe get some justice for Fred. And I did that. And I got great satisfaction from it. Okay. And that, so that was the, the first case that you were involved in. Were there any other seminal cases following the, the Pay's death? Yeah, I had a couple of very important cases. One of them was actually an official duty mm -hmm. at the time 
The M1918A2 Browning automatic rifle was part of ship's weapons on destroyers and destroyer escorts in the Navy. And they had had an unattended runaway doing firing practice off the fan tail of the ship. So here's a fully loaded BAR, just starts shooting, totally run away. The recoil moved it around and it cut the legs up on four sailors. Wow. And Department of the Navy could not solve the problem. They had no idea what was going on. So Navy comes to DA and says, we think you've got some of these in your museum at West Point. We want the curator of the museum. And the superintendent told them, no, you want Arthur Alton. So Department of the Army cut me a set of orders. So I'm on active duty. Of course, I can't charge them money for it. I'm on active duty being paid by the Army. And I get flown to Detroit, picked up at the airport, walk into this room, bunch of lawyers sitting around and the subject BAR on a table. And it took me about five minutes to disassemble it and find the problem. Yeah. And if you know what you're doing, right. it's easy. Right. Yeah. I, well, the knowing where to tap story, right? Very, very important. Uh, so do you restrict yourself to legal cases? I also do design consulting. Okay. In the 1990s, USRAC Winchester was converting the Winchester Model 70 rifle mm. from push feed to control round feed, and they couldn't do it. So they hired me as a consultant, and I redesigned the magazine, the feed ramps, the extractor, the bolt face, redesigned all of that stuff, helped them incorporate that into their manufacture. So when you buy a Model 70 bolt action rifle, Today, that's the Ardolphin version of the Model 70. Nice. Okay. Just going back to legal then, do you testify? Are, are you an expert witness at trials? I've been called an expert witness, but I don't testify at many trials. I testify mm. actually at very, very few. Mm. And the reason being, if I do my job correctly, there is no longer a question of fact that has to go to a jury. Mm. Okay. I was on one case called Minnesota versus Holds, and the crime lab people were making a bunch of statements and issuing reports and trying to drive it to trial and trying to get a conviction. The judge asked me for a report. I gave her a report as to my opinion, and she dismissed disqualified all crime lab testimony and then the state dropped the case. I had another similar one. A guy named Rory Galatly was suing over a defective design of a rifle which injured him when it discharged and broke apart. And it was in Canada. The defense was raised in a huge stink. I sent a report up to the plaintiff lawyer in Canada. I was about ready to head for the airport and they called me up and say, Art, don't bother coming. It's settled. Hmm. And I said, wow, they, they were determined to fight to the bitter end. And the lawyer told me they couldn't find anyone willing to contradict your opinion. <laughs> That's a nice result. 
isn't it? Wow. So generally, are you brought on board uh, uh, in defense situations? In criminal cases, like? I am solely for the defense. In civil, I'll take either plaintiff or defense, whichever one is correct. Okay. If they come to me yeah. and they are correct, if yeah. somebody comes to me and wants me to testify falsely, mm -hmm. I won't touch it. Of course. Right, right. Okay. Well, you have said, we've talked, you've said that the justice system in the uh, United States is broken. Uh, I guess <laughs> that's a big statement. Uh, and I know you've got backup for whatever you say. So let's hear it. Uh, let's hear your elaboration on, uh, on that statement. Based on my experience, when I look at it, I think at least 15% of those who are in prison based on firearms issues. I'm not talking spitting on the sidewalk or something else. Mm -hmm. On firearms issues, 15% are not guilty, were unreasonably, unlawfully convicted, wrongfully convicted. And of those awaiting trial, I'm gonna say, yeah, it's about 15% are wrongfully accused. And that's, that's a pretty big number <laughs> outside of a standard deviation uh, that we would like. What, what I would like, I guess th this show is, I think it has a pretty smart audience. It's a small audience, but uh, we don't have any dumb listeners. Uh, what I think we might be most interested in are hearing about things are where um, there's there's sort of a, a thing with speeding cases, for example, where a lawyer, an attorney can make something sound worse than it is, right? Uh, the car was hurtling towards you, Art, and so how did that make you feel, right? And the car may have actually been going 20 miles an hour, but the description uh, makes it sound worse, or they don't know what they're talking about, and uh, they just say something, some sort of story, that you could easily pick apart. But if you weren't there, right? What I, I wanna hear about, I guess, some things that people should be listening for. Um, you know, I guess we could begin with, what, what do you see as the problem with this broken justice system? What's leading to that 15% or higher uh, wrongful convictions? Mm -hmm. The reason for that, let me take a quick aside. I think liberals, are trying to help right the ship with some of their early releases and their no bail requirements. Hmm. That ain't the issue. The issue is they should not be wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted. And I think many of the wrongful act, accusations and conviction are due to judges and are due to the prosecution establishment. I frequently say that the justice system is no longer a justice system. It's the prison industrial complex. So, why do I say judges? I have seen some judges who were hopelessly out of control and the Supremes of the state who have the responsibility to police the ranks of their lesser justice judges, their circuit judges and magistrate judges, all of those kind of people, and the Supremes at the state level regularly fail to do their job. 
Let me point out one case. I had a case of Kentucky versus Ragland. Ragland was accused of a sniper shooting, killing a member, starting member of the University of Kentucky football team. The judge on that case was a University of Kentucky grad. He was a University of Kentucky booster for the athletics department, and he regularly had picnics in his backyard for the football team and the basketball team. And yet he did not recuse himself from the case. So he demanded a hearing that I testify as I'm going to testify before the jury. So we go in, it's like nine o'clock at night. I bring in all of my training aids, visual aids, and so forth. He's clearly angry at me. Hmm. And it gets down to, I had a cartridge board to explain some of the differences between the various cartridges that could have been involved. And he told me I couldn't say anything about it. All I could do was hold up the cartridge board in front of the jury, but I couldn't say anything. Hmm. How are you going to win that case? The FBI had taken over part of the case, and they were doing what they call their comparative lead bullet alloy analysis, where they melt the death bullet, do spectroscopy on the core, and then ammunition seized from the accused. They pull the bullets and melt those cores and do the same thing, and they match. <laughs> well, you know that's insanity. Mm -hmm. The Remington plant in Lone Oak, Arkansas alone, for every day that they are open, ships 1.75 million rounds of centerfire rifle ammunition. They got lead coming in by the truckload, 44,000 pounds per truckload. You know that's getting mixed when it's melted, when it goes through all the processes to manufacture a bullet. You know it gets mixed. Then it gets mixed again when it goes into the washing machines. Now, in an ammo plant, the washing machine is a nine cubic yard bowl, the same bowl as you see on a concrete truck rolling down the road. And in Lone Oak, they got an area the size of a basketball field house lined on both sides with those bowls washing bullet jackets, cartridge cases in various steps of manufacture, so on and so forth. You know that stuff's getting mixed. Mm -hmm. And then once the bullet is completed and it comes out of the washing and polishing process, then it goes into hoppers on assembly machines. So there's another place where it's mixed. And then the ammo coming out of the assembly machines goes into another set of hoppers and is filled into boxes. To even think that you can compare an alloy of a bullet, death bullet, to an alloy of a bullet 
in a box of ammo seized from the accused means absolutely nothing. But the FBI was sold on that test. And in fact, that was one of the primary reasons Ragland got convicted hmm. and sentenced to 30 years to life. Luckily, the father, Jerry Ragland, was a wealthy developer, and he had the money to fight it, and we fought it. By the time I was through, the FBI lab technician pleaded guilty to misdemeanor perjury, wow. and Ragland was set free, and the state declined to do a second trial. Yeah, it does seem ridiculous, doesn't it? To, to it sounds that that spectrometry test sounds good to a completely uninitiated person, but to anybody who has any knowledge of manufacturing, and in particular this process, um, quickly sounds ridiculous. Yes, you know, many yes. many things are going to <laughs> match up, right? Um, yes, I'm just not that exact with our. Uh, with our issues here. What, what problems do you see, Art, beyond the judges in the justice system? I see what, they, what the justice system and judges accept as experts. Mm -hmm. Let me back up a little bit. I did have another case called Florida sure. versus Jenkins, mm -hmm. where the judge was prejudiced against Jenkins. And I had all of my exemplars, all of my samples, my visual aids. I cleared it with the bailiffs. The bailiffs went outside, checked everything in my excursion, confirmed that everything was inert, everything applied to the case, takes me into the courtroom, helps me set up. The judge walks in before the jury is in, and he blows his stack. Guns are dangerous. You're going to kill somebody. It might go off at any time. And he orders the bailiffs to take all of my stuff and lock it in the closet. Hmm. So there I am trying to explain to a jury, waving my hands, and I don't have any of the exemplars I'm trying to use. Hmm. So Jenkins got convicted. There were other examples of how prejudiced the judge was against Jenkins. Now, we get to the so-called experts. The justice system tries to ensure that only qualified actual experts testify in front of a jury. But then that's left totally up to the judge to decide who that is. And judges, most of them, are lawyers. They only have legal training. So they don't know what they're looking at. And then they also rely heavily on precedent. I was working the appeal of one case in Arkansas, and I'm criticizing the Arkansas crime lab 
analysis, which their analysis was hopeless garbage. And the judge's response to me was, well, we've been admitting their evidence. We've been admitting their testimony for over 40 years. So how do you tell a judge that he's been smoking dope for 40 years? Yeah, that's rough uh, in the legal profession precedent. Uh, and in many other professions, precedent is uh, really important. And yep. uh, as we see, it doesn't matter the quality of that precedence uh, once it gets in there. And the FBI is automatically accepted by judges. Hmm. But remember that lead bullet alloy analysis mm -hmm. they were doing. Right. The FBI, I've got some other cases here where the FBI made a hopeless hash out of it. So a lot of people think FBI stands for Federal Bureau of Investigation. In my line of work, that stands for fan belt installers. All right. Them's fighting words. Because <laughs> yeah. they really don't know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And then the other one is AFTI, mm -hmm. Association of Firearm and Toolmark Examiners. Mm -hmm. They are almost universally accepted by judges as experts. Yeah. And it's AFTI members who work the various crime labs in the various organizations. So for example, I've got a copy of the training manual for the crime lab run by Florida Department of Law Enforcement, run by Harris County, Texas, run by Clark County, Nevada, and run by San Francisco. And their training manuals an AFTI member is basically a microscope operator. He looks in a microscope. There's a computer that takes a slice, photographic slice, from the item on the right-hand stage and the item on the left-hand stage, and then slides them back and forth in relation to each other until some of the scratches or the defects will line up. And then the microscope operator says, it's a Mac. The death cartridge case came from, was fired in, the gun seized from the defendant. They can't say that. Mm -hmm. It's next to impossible. Mm -hmm. So a lot There's of the testing is just not correct. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, considerable they, they room for improvement. Yeah, the, the computer lines something up yeah. And they see some scratches and they say, that's a match. Huh. Yeah. But AFTI used to be the Association of Firearm Mark and Tool Mark examiners. Hmm. Then they took the first mark out and it became the Association of Firearm and Tool Mark, two words, examiners. Then they didn't like that. And they changed it to Association of Firearm and Toolmark, one word, examiners, and they present themselves as knowledgeable about firearms, as being knowledgeable about the design and manufacture of firearms and ammunition. Hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth when we are confronted with an, I still refer to them as a fat me, 
an AFATME member who's going to testify against the defendant, I will ask for their resume. Invariably, they have a college degree, all right, mm -hmm. in things like biology. Mm -hmm. And then they go through their in-house training on use of their comparison microscope. And they'll see some marks and they'll create some wild theory about how those marks got there. Right. Yeah, folks, I want you thinking about how much precedent and bad testing, once it's accepted, bad methodology, uh, just gets used over and over, recycled, um, and taken yes. as fact. It, this is storytelling. And uh, in space and defense, I'm sure we can think of many uses uh, where this, is, this has happened. Well, that is very large. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to get a screenshot of this for those listening to the recording. Art has just brought out a large shell. I was going to demonstrate this, a we've, couple of things using sure, this as a training sure. aid. We've got, we've got a few minutes left here, uh, maybe 10 minutes. So let's try and, uh, and fit that in. I do want, I think I want you back on our, uh, to ask you about what you believe a good expert in firearms and ballistics is, what, what adds up. Because I know it's not just art. <laughs> you know, you're not the only guy on, on your list of who is a qualified expert. So, but let's get into this. Okay. I already mentioned in the case of Kentucky versus Ragland, mm -hmm. how the FBI did their bogus lead bullet alloy test. Mm -hmm. I had another case called Kentucky versus Wilhelm. Wilhelm was crippled, awaiting a hip replacement surgery. Mm -hmm. A guy tries breaking into his house trailer. Wilhelm goes out with a revolver. The guy mounts in his car, charges Wilhelm, who cannot get out of the way and fires a bullet through the windshield. Hmm. He's in pretrial confinement. Paducah, Kentucky. The local police department, and I got this in discovery, writes a letter to the FBI. We know Wilhelm is guilty. We know Wilhelm is a murderer. Hmm. We'd like you to come down and help us prove it and help us get a conviction. So the FBI sent down one crime scene investigator and two graphic artists. Hmm. And they did a computer cartoon showing Wilhelm going to the side of the vehicle, firing through the open passenger window and killing the assailant who was in the driver's seat. Of course, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. The state tried to keep evidence away from me. I wound up working with Department of Public Advocacy in Frankfort, Kentucky. Finally got a court order that they had to give me the autopsy report and the photographs on the dead guy. So I'm in their office. I'm sorting through the photographs. I stop on one and I get up to go. And they say, hey, we need the photographs back. Hmm. No, I'm keeping them. <laughs> and the guy looks over my shoulder at the photo I'm looking at 
and I hear him tell the coroner, shit, he knows. What I knew was that there was no blood in the airways. So if the bullet came through the passenger window, enters the rib cage, goes through the right lung, through the heart, and through the left lung, there's going to be blood in the airways. There wasn't any. The guy had bled out. The bullet disintegrated coming through the windshield. A fragment went just to the left of his sternum between two ribs and severed an outbound aorta from the heart. No other exterior wound. And he bled to death within his thoracic cavity. That was yet another instance where I was able to show that Art Olfen's two-liter rule is correct. That when you lose two liters of fluid from your main circulatory system, your heart is going to fail like a submersible pump at the bottom of a well going dry. Death is certain. Proved it time and time and time again. So that's part of my problem with the FBI. Hmm. Now let's talk about this thing. problems with AFTI <laughs> yeah. and why I've got this sample. This sample, it's entered. You'll see there's no primer in it. There's no propellant in it. It is a sample of the 40 millimeter Bofors cannon which is the primary anti-aircraft cannon mounted on naval ships. Mm-hmm. You've seen them when you watch Victory at Sea. Mm-hmm. The sky is just black with explosions and tracers, and there's sailors stuffing these cartridges into the breaches mm-hmm. of the anti-aircraft cannon just as fast as they can go. What AFTI doesn't know This is a SAMI drawing. Hmm. AFTI members know nothing about SAMI. Let me emphasize that SAMI, Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute, is the only firearms outfit recognized by the federal government. It was started by order of Calvin Coolidge. Hmm. And SAMI is vetted for things such as working with the International Air Transport Association and the International Civil Aviation Authority to write the regulations for the safe carriage of small arms ammunition in the cargo hold of aircraft. Hmm. In fact, I'm the guy that wrote much of the current dangerous goods regulations which are published by IATA, International Air Transport Association. So SAMI has wide recognition. And SAMI is responsible for controlling, for safety purposes, all firearms and ammunition. And it's done by these drawings and by headspace. If you look closely at the drawing, it designates a headspace datum in the chamber and a headspace datum point on the cartridge. The cartridge has to be smaller than the chamber or it can't be fed into the chamber. So let's say you're feeding this cartridge into the chamber. The mechanism cycles, the firing pin strikes the primer, 
but it drives the cartridge forward until the cartridge hits the headspace datum in the chamber and comes to a halt. Then and only then can the firing pin penetrate, go into the primer, and this being the primer here, mm -hmm. firing pin pushes the primer cup mixture against the anvil. That causes the priming compound to initiate, putting fire through the flash hole and causing the propellant to start to burn. Mm -hmm. Somebody may think the propellant is powder. It ain't. It's a propellant. It is not an explosive. It is a deflagrant pro propellant designed to generate gas at an engineering controlled rate as it burns. Now, the other thing, cartridge cases, AFTI members frequently say things like, harder always marks softer. Well, they're stupid. In order to have a good functioning brass cartridge case, we measure the gradient of a needle. We measure the hardness all along the length of the case. At the base of the case, we want it to be 220 or higher on the Vickers hardness scale. The mouth of the case, we want to be about 80 on the Vickers hardness scale. So the cartridge is driven forward till it stops on the headspace datum point. Firing pin penetrates the primer, initiates the primer, the propellant starts to burn. That means there's a gap. The base of the case isn't pre pressing against the brink face. And as the propellant begins to burn, that increasing gas pressure actually forces the primer out of the primer pocket. Mm -hmm. The mouth of the case is soft. So now we got the case laying in the bottom of the chamber by gravity and the buildup of pressure not only pushes the primer back, but it expands the neck. And when that soft neck is expanded against the walls of the chamber, it is locked in. And that is the moment of bullet exit. When this projectile exits the cartridge case and enters the barrel. But now that cartridge case is laying in the bottom. The mouth is anchored into the chamber, but the base of the case is not supported. So the cartridge case actually elongates in the middle. And that elongated case comes crashing down onto the primer, stuffing the primer back into its own primer pocket. Point being there that the discharge of a firearm is a highly, highly dynamic event. It is not the static event that an AFATME member will tell you that it is. Mm. I had a very similar case, Minnesota versus Holmes, mm -hmm. where the AFTI people were claiming that the two expended cartridge cases recovered at the scene of the murder were actually fired from a gun traced to the defendant. And they did their primer analysis, taking the photographs side by side. I wrote a report for the judge 
the state prepared another report to the judge. The judge asked me to expound on mine. I did. And the judge, who had some STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics background, threw out all of the prosecution firearms evidence. <laughs> so the state tried to tried Holmes using their DNA evidence. Well, let me tell you about the problem with the DNA evidence. It's two o'clock in the morning on a park bench in a park. And there's a young lady on the bench entertaining an indeterminate number of gentlemen. You can understand what she yeah. was doing. Yeah. Yeah. A fight breaks out in the waiting line and the deceased gets shot. He runs about 100 yards across the park. He is pursued by his killer who stands over him and puts a bullet through his brain. So the DNA evidence, they took DNA evidence off this young lady's clothing? Come on. Mm -hmm. How are so, you gonna separate out that DNA evidence? All right, so much of this is just storytelling and then what, what people will accept. Finally. Yeah. And uh, I hope we, we think more critically in, uh, in space and defense here. Well, Art, I think this is a good place to wrap up for today. Yeah, I think uh, we probably ought to stop really, when, when we come back and do again. Okay. I've got yep. other cases we can yep. get into illustrating Absolutely. these points. Yeah, and I appreciate you very much uh, being on. also want to thank Indian River Court Reporting and Video Conferencing for facilitating this. Uh, it's, it's a nice... Yeah, Miss uh, Jan Darkin, who runs this outfit, does a crackerjack job. Great, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Colonel, and I look forward to having you on again soon. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Well, if that doesn't have you opening your ears and your mind and going, oh my goodness, <laughs> what what do you think is going on in, in our field as well, right? This isn't just a uh, firearms-specific thing. This is going on all the time everywhere, and we have to really be watchful for it. It's extremely easy to take something that we are told is scientific something that we are told is from an expert and just swallow the whole thing just take it you know because it was sold to us as a story and there was so much storytelling going on out there uh, i'll leave you with this there's a common saying most facts are just opinions <laughs>